Father, for the Holy Ghost that's here within us and among us. We thank you, Father, that he gives us utterance to speak those things which you would have me to say to your people. But, Father, even more than that, we thank you for opening the eyes of each one of our spirits so that we can see and know who we are in Christ so that we may be conformed to his image. We bless you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hallelujah. We, um, if you remember back a couple of months ago, and it seems like years now, rather than just months, but there was a, a period of time, I'm not sure exactly how many weeks it was, that we were unable to have in-person services. But then the Lord directed us to open back up, and we opened up before anybody else was opened up, at least most that, that we knew about. And we weren't trying to do it to make a name for ourselves or create trouble or anything like that. We just know that God wants us to meet. From the time that we opened back up, we have started every service with Revelation chapter 12 because it speaks of the purpose of the devil in these last days. And it really tells the, the, the foundation, it describes the foundation or a backdrop for everything that's going on in the world today. Specifically, the scriptures in Revelation chapter 12 that we're talking about is it identifies that the devil's purpose, his only purpose, his sole purpose, is to wage war on the church, the people of God. So that's what's taking place regardless of the things that we see around us, the things that look political or the things that are political in nature is just part of the devil making war on the church. It's the foundation on which everything else is taking place. Now the devil uses deceit. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that he deceives the whole world. We know that that can't be taken literally because he's not going to deceive us. But it's the only weapon that he has. Now, deceitfulness or deceit, being deceived, it just simply means the devil's hiding the truth. There's never been a time in the history of mankind where it's been more important to know the truth. Jesus spoke to his disciples. Actually, he spoke to those that believed in him in John chapter 8 and said, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Hosea 4, 6 says, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. In other words, they're hidden from the truth. Now, I want you to look with me to, to Matthew chapter 24. This is also some uh, scriptures that we have been using since the time that we reopened as well. Because the things that are going on around us, if they're not last day stuff, what in the world would they be? We've got people, I think, 
that have never really believed in the last days of the end time preaching that the Bible gives us, and even they are now agreeing that it's last days. And the thing that amazes me about this stuff is the speed with which it's taking place. I mean, every day's an adventure. To find out what new is, is taking place or what has taken place since you went to bed the night before. Well, the Bible says the devil accelerates his operations because he knows his time is short. Now, whether or not you know his time is short, he knows his time is short. Jesus talked to his disciples about end time stuff. Beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. They were impressed with how beautiful the buildings were. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Now, I've, I've said this probably every week that we read these verses of Scripture, at least almost everyone. I used to look at that verse of Scripture as just the introduction for what he was about to tell us. He goes on to identify certain activities and certain events that take place or will take place for the, concerning the end times. But he's really telling them the most important thing up front. Deception is the thing that we have to guard against. We have to make sure, and it's our responsibility. Nobody else can do it for you. We have to make sure that we search out the truth so that we know what it is. Jesus talked in parables on many occasions to his disciples. And there are a couple of times where the Bible says he did so because he didn't want just the casual listener to understand what he was saying. God wants you to study. He wants you to dig. He doesn't want you just to take what's left over on the wayside, perhaps, and live on that. He expects us to delve into his word, dive deep into the word of God so that we know the truth, so that we can walk in freedom. Now, Jesus certainly paid the price necessary for all of us to be free in every area of life. But just because we're born again doesn't mean we are going to be free. We're going to have to get in the Word and find out what the Word says for ourselves so that we can walk in the truth and the freedom that the truth brings. Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. A rumor is, is something that's not true, right? So he's saying you shall hear of wars and fake news about wars. Now I'll use that, that phrase because everybody is familiar with that over the last couple of years. But that's exactly what the Bible is talking about. Just because it doesn't use the same terminology as what we're accustomed to or what we're hearing, it's still the same thing. You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation. This word nation is the word ethnos. It's where we get an ethnic or ethnicity from 
It's talking about race wars. Who would have ever predicted what we're seeing around us and have been seeing for the last number of weeks? Somehow Jesus knew what that was going to be. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The word kingdom there means uh, countries, what we would identify as countries. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Famine, we know what that is, is hunger. Earthquakes, we know what that is. And pestilence means plagues or sickness. Notice how the world's come to a stop because of a plague. And it really hadn't even been a bad one as plagues go. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. This word nations is the word ethnos again. It literally says that the races of the world will turn against the church. And they shall, then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Here where it says for a witness, the gospel of this kingdom shall be preached as a witness. It means with proof or evidence. It's talking about signs and wonders and miracles. Now, folks, since Jesus told us the things that we should look for, he told us not to be deceived, and I think that applies in every area. Don't be deceived about finances. Don't be deceived about healing. Don't be deceived about anything Jesus paid the price for. But then because Jesus identifies famines, race wars, countries that go into war with each other, pestilences, and so forth, the glory of the Lord would have to be seen in those areas, wouldn't it? In other words, he's saying concerning famine, regarding his people, the glory of the Lord will sustain them. Because Jesus paid the price for sin and sickness, then the glory of the Lord shall be a witness in the area of healing too. Now, when we know that the devil's only plan of attack, his only operation, the only thing he's really got is deceit or the hiding of the truth, then that puts a burden upon us to find out the truth as much as or more than anything else that there is. We see things that are taking place on the part of the devil to either hide the truth or obscure the truth when a little bit of light is found. I want you to look with me to John chapter 18. Jesus is taken before Pilate just before he's crucified. I'm going to start to just pull a verse of scripture out of its context here in verse 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, talking about Jesus, Art thou then a king? Jesus said, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, 
that I should bear witness under the truth. That I should bear witness under the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate said unto him, What is truth? Now, folks, the reason I want you to see this is because one of the things that the devil does to hide the truth or obscure the truth is he gives this worldly wisdom position that so many people take about the truth being subjective or relative. You hear some of these people, well, Oprah is one that I'm thinking of right off the bat. Her thing is, you have your truth, and I have my truth. And it's pretty elitist, or is thought to be very highly intellectual position to take to identify or to, to persuade people that the truth is not absolute. And folks, unless you accept the truth to be absolute, the Bible is never going to make sense to you. God said, I am God, I change not. The Bible says God is no respecter of persons. The Bible says there's no variableness in God, neither the shadow of turning. When you come to accept that the Bible is absolutely true, no matter what else is going on around us, now there may be physical realities that we face affliction and trouble and adversity but unless you accept the truth that God is always the same you're never going to find the answer and you're never going to be able to overcome because if we're left with a situation if we're left with the dilemma that God wants one thing for somebody over here and God wants something else for somebody over, over there then you're never going to be able to stand in faith concerning anything. Faith begins where the will of God is known. And one of the greatest ways that you can accept the will of God or know the will of God is to accept that God's always the same. Now here's what that means. That means that God cannot be the author or the creator of sickness. The Bible says God created everything that he made in six days, and after that he rested. Now, you can go back and read the Genesis creation account and see very clearly that there was no sickness or disease in all the earth the way God made it. There was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind. There was one and only one thing that Adam and Eve had to watch out for, and that was the enemy. And that enemy certainly deceived them. And the way that he deceived them is he told them that God wasn't who he said he was. And the consequences of disobedience wouldn't really happen to them. That's the only tactic he's got, folks. He's working overtime against you and against me and against all the people of God. To influence us to obscure the truth so that we not take hold of what Jesus purchased for us. Now, one of the things that the Bible talks about, as we mentioned, 
is pestilences or plagues. And really, everything that's happened over the last several months has been because of a plague. This coronavirus pandemic has changed everything about the world. Now, the disease itself didn't change the world. But the fear of what the disease would be is what changed everything about the world that you and I live in now. The fear of what would happen, which never really did, the fear of what would happen brought the world to a standing, to a halt. The fear of what was going to happen. Now, I want to ask you a question, folks. Do you think this is the last pandemic or the last plague we've heard about? It's going to be more important than ever before for us to be settled in what the knowledge of the truth is concerning healing for the people of God. Now, if there's one thing that the devil has obscured the truth, hidden away the truth concerning healing, has been this notion of Paul's thorn in the flesh. More people, more Christians have died because they accepted the teaching, the denominational teaching about Paul's thorn in the flesh than any other thing regarding sickness and disease. So I want you to turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1, Paul said, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. I want you to realize something, folks. Paul, the real man, the spirit, the man on the inside, can't tell the difference between being in the body and out of the body. The life that he experienced or the, the things that he experienced, the condition of his existence while he was caught up into the third heaven was such that it didn't cause him to know anything different than what he was experiencing here on the earth. See, so many times I think we look at eternal life being something that happens when we die. But folks, if you don't have eternal life now, you certainly don't want to die and see what happens. So Paul said, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. The translators translated this to imply, at least it seems to me to be the implication, that Paul's not allowed to say what he saw and what he experienced. Well, if that was the case, why did he experience it? Why would God show him something that he wouldn't let him tell? Rather, where he says it's not lawful for a man to utter, that really means there are no words to describe what I saw. 
Folks, everything that God reveals to you is not just for your, your own revelation, personal revelation. Everything God reveals to us, whether it's by the Spirit of the Lord, which happened to Paul, or by the, the Holy Ghost working through the written word, that revelation is not exclusive revelation for anybody. God wants everybody to see the things that Paul saw. And thank God we will. But the things that Paul saw, the things that he experienced, the words that he heard, he gave those to the church as much as he was able to describe and to identify. These are the foundation principles for what we know of as the New Testament of the Bible. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament about the things that he saw and the things that, he, that were revealed to him. Verse 5, of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth. Apparently the truth was important to him. But now I forbear, lest any should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now this has been taught, this Paul's thorn in the flesh has been taught throughout the church world for centuries. That Paul had some terrible sickness. Some have gone so far as to identify that he had, the sickness that he had was ophthalmia. And the, the descriptions that, have, that I've read from preachers about this condition, this dreaded condition that Paul was supposed to have had, was that there was pus running out of his eyes constantly. Now, folks, let me ask you something. Would you go to healing for somebody that had pus running out of their eyes all, all the time? Acts chapter 19 Verse 11 says, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were taken to the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and it was laid upon the sick, and those that had evil spirits, those evil spirits departed from them, and others that were just sick were healed. Would you put a cloth on you? <laughs> from somebody with that kind of condition? How in the world could Paul, and we know his gospel was healing, in Acts chapter 14, it says that Paul went down to the city of Lystra, which is in the region of Galatia, and there they preached the gospel. And then it tells us about a certain man that was lame in the, the city of Lystra. The same heard Paul speak. Well, the preceding verse just said that he preached the gospel. And it said that the man heard Paul speak 
who steadfastly beholding him, Paul steadfastly beholding the guy, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he did. Now, Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word. For this man to have faith to be healed, and Acts 14, verse 7 clearly says that he does. Paul perceived that he had faith to be healed. In order for him to have faith to be healed, he had to have heard healing preached. Because you can't get faith for healing without, healing, without hearing what the Word says on healing. If Paul had been preaching on water baptism, he might have had faith to be, born, uh, to be baptized. But the fact that the Bible says that he had faith to be healed necessitates that what Paul, by the Holy Ghost, called the gospel was a healing message. How in the world could Paul inspire somebody else to be healed if he had this terrible eye disease that some have claimed that he had? Where would be the guy's question saying to Paul, well, you're preaching gospel, the gospel of healing. You're preaching that Jesus wants me well, but why aren't you healed? So the church has developed this, this concept of Paul's thorn in the flesh. Let's dig a little deeper. Let's find the truth. Verse 7 again. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Now who's the one that's giving Paul the revelations? Isn't that God? Certainly wouldn't be the devil. So if God was behind this, as so many people believe that he is or was, if God was behind this, why did he have to give him sickness and disease? Why did he just stop giving him the revelations? See, the one that was trying to keep Paul from being exalted was the devil. Because those revelations that Paul was getting that identifies the things that we know to be true, who we are in Christ and the power of God that works in us and so forth, being made the righteousness of God in him. When we exalt those things, it brings us closer and closer to God. So the devil's got a problem. Here's Paul, who has entered into the family of God in a, in a spectacular manner on the road to Damascus experience. Now he's got these revelations of who we are in Christ that nobody else seemed to have. I'm always amazed by the fact that Peter talks about Paul's preaching. And he says that Paul preaches, our brother Paul preaches those things some of the things which are hard to understand. Well, if they're hard for Peter to understand, and remember Peter wasn't educated, if they're hard for Peter to understand, it's pretty obvious that Peter's not preaching the same things. So now the devil's got somebody that's preaching things from the unseen realm because he saw them and because he experienced them. How's the devil going to stop that? 
Well, he can't stop it on Paul's end, so he tries to stop it on the people's end. So Paul says, lest I be exalted above measure, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh. A thorn in the flesh. Now, folks, there are three times in the Old Testament that the Bible talks about thorns in the flesh in this same manner. You don't have to look there if you don't want to, but let me give them to you. Numbers chapter 33, verse 55. This is Moses talking to the children of Israel about taking hold of the promised land. He's about to go off the scene. They're about to conquer Canaan land. And here's what Moses said. Moses said, but if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your side and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. The next time is eight years later in Joshua chapter 23, verse 13. Joshua says, Know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. The third place in the Old Testament that's used is in 2 Samuel chapter 23, Verse 6, one of the last words that David says before he goes off the scene. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. Now here's what I want you to see. Of the three times, and Paul certainly knows this, Paul's education that he tells us about was that he had the same training as the high priest. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, so he couldn't be a part of the priesthood. But apparently his family was of some wealth or some means to provide for him the religious training, the religious education. So that if he had been able, by being of the tribe of Levi, he would have been equipped for the purpose or equipped for the job. So Paul would know this. Part of the the rabbinical teaching was that the law and the prophets, which for us means the whole of the entire uh, Old Testament, had to be memorized. The unique qualifications of Paul to stand in the office that he did was just shocking. So Paul would know these things. He would know these verses. He would know these things. And in every one of these three uh, um, instances where a thorn or a prick in the side or something like that is used it's always talking about people it's not talking about adversity it's not talking about sickness it's not talking about disease it's talking about people so go back with me to 2 Corinthians 12 again let's read in verse 7 again and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh every time this thorn in the flesh Illustration is used. The Bible identifies who he's talking about. And Paul does the same thing. There was given unto me the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan. Now, if God was behind this, this would be the messenger of God, would he? But it says it was the messenger of Satan. Now, this word messenger in the Greek is the word angelos. It's where we get the word angel. It's used 188 times In the New Testament. 188 times. Seven of those 188. 
it's used as messenger, and the other 181, it's used as angels, translated as angels. Paul clearly identifies that it was a personality, not a disease. Furthermore, if we skip down into verse 8, Paul said, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me, that it might depart from me, that it might depart from me. Both Rotherham and Weymouth's translation of this verse of Scripture uses him or he in the place of the word it. Paul is very simply saying for these, this purpose, I asked the Lord three times that he might depart from me. Now, wouldn't it be silly for us to come up to somebody and say, how's your cancer doing today? And have somebody respond and say, well, he's not doing too well today. We understand that personalities don't, that sicknesses don't have personalities. Sickness and disease is a thing. Paul says there was a him. So lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations that was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger or the personality of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. This word buffet may be one of the most important words that Paul uses in this experience, relating this experience. Because the word buffet means to, to deliver blow after blow after blow. So if Paul is talking about sickness and disease, which he can't be, the language doesn't allow it. The language that he used by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. But if it was talking about sickness and disease, it would have to be sickness after sickness after sickness after sickness after sickness. Because one sickness does not deliver blow after blow after blow. Now, there are a couple other places in the New Testament where this word buffet is used. One is when Paul is on his way to Rome facing shipwreck. It talks about how the waves of the, the sea buffeted against the boat. Wave after wave after wave after wave. The other place that it talks about was when Paul was caught up into a, the, a riot, a citywide riot. And the blows of the people that were rioting against his preaching were raining down on him blow after blow after blow after blow. So when Paul says this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan was sent to, to buffet him, he's talking about things that are delivering blow after blow after blow against him. Now let's think about who this guy is. Paul gives us a lot of information about himself. Back up just a chapter to, to chapter 11, if you will. Let's start reading in verse 22. Paul's talking about other ministers. He's talking about people that have come in among the Corinthian church and abused the people, and they allowed it. But notice what he says about himself, beginning in verse 22. He says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. 
Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. And we'll come back to the rest of it for just a moment, but I want you to see something. Paul is not talking about these things in a vacuum. His life is well known. Paul was probably the most famous person on the face of the earth when he was here. Certainly toward the end of his ministry when this letter would have been written. Paul takes exception with the churches that he founded because they're taken in by other people's preaching. They accept without verifying for themselves, without comparing the things that they're hearing with what Paul established them in, the truth that he established them in. And so Paul has to, and it's only with the Corinthian church, because the Corinthian churches are the ones that started taking sides against him. And so he has to show his credentials, so to speak, now notice something about it. He says that he has done more as a minister of the gospel than any of these false prophets or false teachers that have come in and bragged about what they've done. And notice he talks about in labors more abundant. Now let me ask you something. How many people have you seen in the body of Christ that have faced these terrible conditions of sickness and disease? that are able to outwork people that, don't, that are well and healthy. How is that possible? So he says, in labors I'm more abundant than all the others that you're holding on to and turning away from me to here. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequent. In deaths off. Of the Jews five times received thy forty stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. This is a very specific punishment or means of punishment where people would take these, these long rods, or reeds really, kind of like bamboo, and they would beat the person on the bottom of their feet. Now, I want to make sure to go ahead and say this to make sure that I don't forget it later on, get involved in something else and forget to say it. But Paul traveled most everywhere he went on foot. And so for Paul to have experienced these kind of torturous punishments and abuse and still be able to, to be strong enough to travel hundreds or thousands of miles is a testament, to, in my thinking, to the healing power of God, the sustaining power of God. So he says, Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that come that are without, 
that which comes upon me daily, the care of all the churches. I don't know about how you see this, but I don't imagine that would be a very good recruitment <laughs> presentation. Paul said specifically that he bore in his body the marks of the Lord. Now go back to chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 4, Paul says, But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in laborers, in watchings, in fasting, by pureness, by knowledge, by longsuffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet as true. That just means people would call him a deceiver when here he was preaching the truth of the gospel. As unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Folks, I would submit to you that by the, the list in chapter 11 and the list here in chapter 6, the only thing Paul doesn't mention is sickness. I want you to turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians was written between one and two years before the second letter that we know of to the Corinthians. Beginning in verse 9, Paul said, For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and are naked, and are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling place. Here's that word buffeted again. One translation translates this verse, or this part of this verse, as victim of mob violence. And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscoring of all things unto this day. It seems that Paul was well known by these people as he certainly was. It seems to me that he would certainly mention some disease that he had if it was as so many preach that it is that God wouldn't heal him. Now go back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 again because there's more here that we need to consider. I'm going to read verse 7 again. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. There was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. 
For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that he might depart from me. One of the things that came to my attention not too awfully long ago about this verse of Scripture. Paul prayed about this thing three times. Three times. Now here's something that, that I gained a little bit of insight into Paul's prayer life. Whatever this messenger of Satan was doing. For example, if somebody does choose to believe that it was sickness and disease, even though Paul didn't say it was, he specifically identified the persecution and the things that came upon him at the hands of men as being this messenger of Satan. But if you or I were in this trouble, I dare say we'd be praying about this three times every 30 seconds. With all the things that Paul endured, with all the things that he experienced, that he told us about over this, this period of time, and this wasn't even at the end of his ministry yet. He, he still had probably six or seven years more to go before he was martyred, had his head cut off by Nero. He prayed about this thing three times. Here's what it says to me about his prayer life. Once Paul asked for something, that was it. John wrote to the church, 1 John chapter 5. He said, if any of us ask anything according to his will, then we know he hears us. And if we know he hears us, then we have whatever we petitioned him for. Paul had a kind of understanding and relationship with God that though something might be delayed, he did not allow that to affect his thinking or what he believed for in any way whatsoever. I don't know about you, but that's an indictment against me. I'd like to say that I was of the same strength and position of Paul. <clears throat> but I haven't gotten there yet. Stick around. I will get there. But the relationship that he had with God as his father was staggering. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that he might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. <clears throat> Folks, is there any time where anybody came to Jesus during his earthly ministry and said, Lord, have grace on me? Anytime, anywhere, anybody came to Jesus because they recognized that he was the Messiah and asked for grace? We've got a lot of times where people ask for mercy. And when Jesus would ask, what do you want me to do for you? A number of times. In fact, every time that I recall, it had something to do with the healing mercy of God or the healing power of God. Now, here's why that's important. 
Grace is never used, never used in Scripture as deriving or producing a benefit for the physical body. Grace is a spiritual force that affects the man on the inside, not the man on the outside. So where Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, he can't be talking about something that will produce a physical result or a result in the body. He cannot. That's not what grace is. Grace is an influence on the heart of the spirit of man. So when Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, so many preachers are saying, see, Jesus said that he wouldn't heal. Well, I've got a response to that, and that is this. If Jesus told Paul that he wouldn't heal him, that Jesus would not heal him, then that means Jesus changed. Because you can never find in the four Gospels any time, in any circumstance whatsoever, where Jesus turned somebody down that came to him for physical healing. Never. There were people that he left sick, but he never turned away anybody that came to him. For example, in John chapter 5, you remember the pool, the pool of Bethesda. There were five porches there around those pools. Jesus went in and found one guy that was crippled and asked him, will you be made whole? The guy said, I don't have anybody to put me in the water when the angel troubles it to bring healing to my body. Jesus told him to rise, take up his bed, and walk. The man was healed. And it says that Jesus conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Well, who were the multitudes? Well, what comprised the multitude that was around the pools of Bethesda? Other sick people. So Jesus left them there sick. He left them in the same condition that they, they were in when he came. But nobody came to him for healing in that group. You can't find anywhere where Jesus refused to heal. The Syrophoenician woman in Matthew chapter 15. She came and Jesus rebuffed her. Jesus said that the healing power of God that she sought for her daughter was for the Israelites, not for the Gentiles. But she wouldn't give up. And because she demonstrated her faith to him, he said, daughter, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. You can't find anywhere any time, under any circumstances where Jesus refused to heal when somebody came to, to him to receive. So if that's what Jesus is saying to Paul here, if he's saying, I'm not going to heal you because I've got to humble you because of the abundance of revelations, which is just asinine, folks. But if that's what Jesus is saying, then we've got to tear some pages out of our Bible. We've got to do away with the part where God said, I'm God, I don't change. We've got to do away with Hebrews 13, 8, where it says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We've got to tear out the pages where it says, God's no respecter of persons. What Jesus said was, my strength is, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, the things that Paul has identified in the other three openings that we looked at, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The things that he talks about that he's experienced 
were at the hands of men due to persecution. And nowhere does the Bible say that God has redeemed us, that Jesus has redeemed us from persecution. In fact, Paul's the one that tells us, they that uh, live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So Paul says, he seems to be clear on this. He said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This word, infirmities, means weakness. It is used a number of times in the New Testament as sickness. But there are, one thing that I want you to see concerning this, hopefully it will help explain things. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, it says, When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Well, there you see the difference in the two words that are used between weakness and sickness. Now this is referring to the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Those, word, those two words, griefs and sorrows, really means sickness and pain. They're translated sickness and pain in every other place that they're used in the Old Testament. I guess when the translators got to that and saw how clearly it identified that Jesus died not for our sins only, but for sickness and disease as well, it must have been too hard for them to take because they just flat dropped the ball. They use griefs and sorrows instead of sickness and pains, which those words mean. And that's what Matthew is talking about. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now, folks, I want you to think with me about this. It's important that we rightly divide the word of truth. Paul told Timothy, study to show yourself a workman unto God, approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, if you can rightly divide the word of truth, then you can wrongly divide the word of truth. Jesus did not fulfill Isaiah's prophecy until he went to the cross and he took stripes upon his back. Isaiah's prophecy continues in verse 5, Isaiah 53, verse 5. It says, but he was wounded for our transgression. That's sin. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's sin. The only difference between those two is talking about original sin, Adam's sin, plus your individual sins. He paid the price for both. So he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That word peace is the word shalom. It's translated prosperity in many other places in the Bible. It's talking about financial well-being as a part of what Jesus Paid the price for. And then the last thing it says, and with his stripes we are healed. With his stripes we are healed. Right here in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus hadn't taken stripes on, on his back. So it can't be the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5. Yet the Bible says that he fulfilled Isaiah 53 verse 4 and 5. The only thing that makes this any part of a fulfillment 
is what it says in verse 16. And that is, he healed all that were sick. See, the fact that he healed all that were sick, that's showing that he's fulfilling Isaiah and the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He healed all that were sick. That goes back to truth. It comes back to the knowledge of the truth. God never changes. He's no respecter of persons. God didn't pick one person to be healed and another person to stay sick. He healed all that were sick to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. In other words, to show us, therefore, that the prophecy of Isaiah that includes physical healing for the body is for all who are sick. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So, folks, after all of this, if somebody still takes the position that infirmities, because this word infirmities is sometimes translated sickness, then Paul was sick. Then I've got a question for you. Why would he take glory in them except for the fact that he says, when I identify a weakness, then the, the strength of God lifts me up. In other words, if Paul was sick, then for him to glory in his infirmities would necessitate, by his own words, by his own statement, would necessitate that God healed him. Because when I'm weak, or in this case, if somebody believed that would mean when I'm sick, then am I strong. Now what brings strength concerning sickness and disease? Healing. We don't see anybody coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, strengthen me so I can carry this disease. When Jesus asked, what would you have me to do? The answer is always the same. That I might see or that my body might be healed, whatever the case was. Always. So he says, I'll take in pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, when I have no physical strength on my own, then God gives me the physical strength. To what end? To overcome the infirmities. To overcome the reproaches. To overcome the necessities. To overcome the persecutions. To overcome the distresses. Now turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 verse 13. Paul said, For you know how the infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation which was in my flesh you, you despise not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Wherein is the blessedness that you spoke of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. And I'm therefore, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Notice verse 13 again. He says, you know, well know, how that when I first came to you, I preached to you an in infirmity of the flesh. Now, without taking the time to go over there, but you can do it for yourself if you like. And in Acts chapter 14, 
we referred to the fact that he went down to Lystra in verse 6. And there they preached the gospel. Verse 7 tells us about the crippled man at Lystra. How that Paul perceived that he had faith to be healed. Which as we said before means he had to have been preaching healing. As a part of his gospel message. See folks, God's gospel message includes healing. The churches might not. But God's gospel message includes healing for the physical body. So the crippled man was healed. And then it tells us just a couple of verses later how that from the cities that they had just come from, the Jews had stirred up people to go down to where Paul was in Lystra. And they stoned him and left him for dead. Now, folks, the people that came down from one city down to Lystra to stone Paul, they are professional stoners. I mean that literally. I'm not making a joke about it. These are people that were schooled in the law of Moses, even though they twisted it to their own advantage or to their own means. But when they left Paul for dead, they wouldn't have left him there half dead. They wouldn't have left him without checking to make sure that he was dead. So when the scripture said they left him for dead, they left him dead. But then it says after they left, the church there, the people that had accepted Paul's preaching about Jesus gathered around him. And they began to pray and all of a sudden God raised him up. And then it says that he went right back to the same cities that he came from. Now, that's the first time Paul was at Galatia. You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached to you at the first. Indicating that things weren't still the same way. But that something had happened when he was first with them. So when Paul goes back into the city, here these people have been back home for several days. Some period of time at least. And they've told everybody in town, we won't have any more trouble with that Paul fellow. And then Paul comes walking down the road. Here where it goes on to say. In verse, four, in verse 15. Wherein is the blessedness that you spake of. For I bear you record. That if it had been possible. You would have plucked out your own eyes. And have given them unto me. Well that fits into the, the people that preached. That Paul had ophthalmalia with this oozing pus stuff, junk coming out of his eyes. But what is he saying? Well, there's only two possibilities, folks. Either he's really saying that they would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to him because he was blind or he had this terrible eye disease or he's speaking figuratively like we might say, we'd give my right arm for something. He goes on to the Galatians and says this he said you see what a large letter I've written to you in my own hand and some have used that as another proof or evidence that Paul had to write in these great big long tall letters because he could barely see well if you look at the book of Galatians it's six chapters it's not nearly as long as some of the others Paul wrote. 
But most Bible historians believe that the book of Hebrews was attached to the book of Galatians because the condition that he identifies in Galatia is that the Jews have come from Jerusalem and tried to stir up and tear up things in the church, telling them that they had to still keep the law of Moses and so forth. That may be a, an explanation why the book of Hebrews, standing alone, does not identify the author. But it's certainly Paul's message. It's certainly some things that he would have seen when he was caught up into the third heaven. Is it possible that Paul was still feeling the effects and showing in his body the effects of being stoned? We know he had to have scars. He said so. I bear in my body the works of the Lord Jesus or the, uh, the marks of the Lord. The persecution, the beatings and things that he took. He still had scars on his back from those things. God delivering them, him from those things and restoring him to health doesn't mean that he wouldn't have scars. What would you expect somebody to look like if they had just been stoned a few days before? We've seen these prize fighters come out just having been hit with leather gloves and their eyes are all swollen shut and that kind of stuff. Why would we expect it to be any different for Paul? So what does this mean where he says, you know how in, through the infirmities of the flesh I preached to you, unto you in, at the first? What does that mean? Well, whatever it was, it wasn't a lasting condition. It was something that cleared up. And I believe the stoning of Paul, as the book of Acts describes, certainly would fit that category of, of what happened to him. Folks, very simply, the Bible truth is this. Jesus took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. These are things we better get settled in because there really might be a plague of some serious note that comes down the road in our future. doesn't have to affect us because the truth of God's word concerning healing will make us free from sickness and disease. Now, if there's anybody here this morning that wants to be prayed for or ministered to to receive your healing, would you raise your hand, please? Okay. Would you come and make your way up to the front, please? Just line up right across the front there at the edge of the carpet there, if you will. I'm going to ask you in the congregation to stand. The Bible says in James chapter 5, Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. I want you to notice it's not the anointing with oil that does it. The prayer of faith shall save the sick or heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. 
And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So if the devil's telling you this is due to your own problem or your own fault or your own wrongdoing, the Bible says God forgives that sin just like he heals of sickness and disease. So I'm going to pray over all of you to begin with, and then I'm going to come by and anoint you with oil. So you listen to this prayer and see if you can agree with it. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for your healing mercy. We come to you today, Lord, in obedience to your word, but not really asking you to do anything because Jesus has already taken our sickness and our infirmities and paid the price for them. So, Father, what we do here today is quite simply to minister your healing power to the people of this congregation. We thank you, Father, that you're no respecter of persons. We thank you that healing belongs to each and every one of us in the precious and holy name of Jesus. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we anoint these people with oil. We thank you that from this point forward, you will raise them up. That the contact of our hands transmits your healing power to each and every one in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good. Thank you, Lord, that it's done. In Jesus' name. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lamb. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name. Blessed be the name of Jesus Christ. I know. I know. I know. I see. Bless you, Lord. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Now let's just lift our hands and thank God for it's done. We thank you, Lord, for your healing mercy that belongs to each and every one of us. Lord, you didn't have to heal our bodies, but you loved us so much that you did. We worship you, Lord, as head of the church. We thank you, Lord, for raising up each and every one of these individuals. Our bodies are saturated with the life of God. 
and no sickness, no disease can take hold of us. Sickness, you have to go. Disease, you have to depart from our flesh. In the precious name of Jesus. In the precious name of Jesus. In the precious name of Jesus. Is it done? Is it done? Thank you, Lord, for your word. The unchanging eternal word of God has made us whole. From this point forward, look back on this time as the time where you believed you received your healing. No matter what it looks like in your flesh, no matter what circumstance or, or conditions are present in your flesh, whether it looks like anything's changed or not, from this point forward at 11.20 in the morning, on Sunday, August the 15th, 16th, that's the point where you believed you received your healing. Amen. Amen. We'll let you go back to your seats now. Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands and thank God one more time for being so good to us. We love you, Father. We magnify your holy name, Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you restore our health and heal our wounds. Thank you that your word is life unto us, for we have found it, and it's health or medicine to all our flesh. In Jesus' precious name. Folks, we love you. We thank you for being a part of our family. We'll have healing school, not as an in-person service, but as we do the live stream. We invite you to that service, to watch with us on that service, as well as the Wednesday night services.